0: Let us hear the word of the Lord from Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 12 and just read the whole context again. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me but received me as an angel of God, as Jesus Christ. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They they want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish that I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, once again, we have come to you this morning to hear from you, not to have our ears tickled, not to have our uh, preconceived ideas confirmed, but to hear from your word, to be confronted with sin, to be encouraged in truth to be comforted in the fact that our sins are forgiven in you and Father, to be enlivened again and and encouraged to go and, and be your presence on this earth, to be your body on this earth, to be your hands and feet. So Lord, we pray now that once again you would open our hearts and minds to these words that we would hear from you. May I explain them, Lord, in a way that is faithful and consistent with truth, in a way that will melt our hearts, bend our pride, destroy our sin, and will instead crucify us that we that you may live in us and we may reflect your image in this world. We pray all of this that you would move me aside and that your spirit would take your word and place it and and implant it on our hearts. It is in your name we pray, amen. As you know, last week we were looking at verses 12 through 20, and I wanted to uh, read the whole context again so that you would be reminded of some of the things that we talked about last week. Uh, You know, when when I was reading this text this week, I was reminded of a story that, Uh, Phil Johnson told one time. uh, You guys probably don't know Phil Johnson, but you've become very aware of the name John MacArthur. Uh, The the name of his ministry is Grace to You, and Phil Johnson is the executive director of Grace to You. So that's my connection with him. And he is an avid Spurgeon fan. He actually runs a website called the Spurgeon Archive. And uh, anyway, uh, he told the story that he got to preach in Metropolitan Tabernacle one time. Peter Masters is the pastor there now, a wonderful man of God who is following in Spurgeon's footsteps. In fact, if you don't know that church, you should, because it's a, their, their pastors are a virtual who's who of Baptist history. Uh, Benjamin Keach, John Gill, uh, Charles Spurgeon, I mean, you name it, they, they've all pretty much pastored there. And, uh, and as he was sitting in Dr. Master's study and praying for the service, it occurred to him that this church was 200, I think, and 50 years old when Spurgeon took it, when Spurgeon became the pastor. This is a church that was founded in 1650 and has, and to this day is still faithfully preaching the evangelical gospel, that has never wandered or strayed from the faith. And that just really hit, I mean, we're talking about a nearly 400-year-old church. The average age of the church in America is 90, just to give you an idea. And so, uh, so Phil asked Dr. Masters, he said, is there any other churches in England that are just as old and are still preaching the gospel? And, and to his surprise, Dr. Masters said, oh yeah. Yeah, in fact, there's over 50. They did a study and some of them are older than we are. And here's the amazing thing. He said, in this study, they found that the vast majority of them are independent, Baptistic, and Reformed. Now, I don't know about you, but I like that statistic. It's affirming to me. It shows that, that when we are concerned with, with not with hierarchies and not with what the powers on be and, and denominational structures, but, but when we are concerned with what the word of God says, there is a preserving power to that. There is a, there is a preservation that comes from that. And it is seen in, in many churches as we see here. It's so easy to make little, subtle compromises to the gospel. That's so easy to do. It's so easy. in the messiness of ministry, and ministry is messy. In fact, one of the things I'd like to say is that if it's not messy, it's not ministry. And in the messiness of ministry, it is so easy to make little compromises here and there to the gospel, to the holiness of the church, to the teaching of the truth. It's so easy to make these little compromises. And so the problem is, is that after a while, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we've seen that time and time and time and time again throughout church history. We're seeing that in churches in our community. We're seeing that all over. And my prayer is that Calvary Baptist Church, we would not compromise the gospel that we would not make, as soon as we recognize little compromises here and there, whether it's to the holiness of the church, whether it's to the truth of God's word, whether it's to whatever it is, we would, we would deal with it immediately. Because a church, as we said last week, a church that is created by the gospel ought to be formed by the gospel. A church that is created by the gospel, a church that has its grounding, a church that has its origin in the gospel is a church that needs to be formed and shaped by the gospel. Just like your kids have your DNA, so a church that is profoundly uh, uh, grounded in the gospel will have that spiritual DNA running through everything that they do. It'll shape what we look like. And not just the church, but our lives as well. And so we saw last week in this text that our lives, we must strive to be formed by the gospel, to be shaped by the gospel, to live gospel-shaped lives and to be a gospel-shaped church. We must be formed by the gospel. And what will this look like? We saw three characteristics and and I'm I'm not going to review them. I'm just going to tell you what they are from last week. You can go back and listen to that recording if you so will. But the first one we saw was that we will have fellowship, that gospel-shaped fellowship and, and how that's created by embracing our weaknesses. We do And the law encourages us to focus on our strengths and that leads to a, a, a self-righteous criticism of others. And, and so the gospel teaches us to embrace our weaknesses and understand that we are sinners that are saved by grace. And we also saw hospitality is involved with that. We are a welcoming people. We're not, we're not a little clique. We're not us four and no more. We're not the frozen chosen. We are people who welcome anybody and everybody because we want everybody to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're also a, a gospel-shaped church. It's also gonna be shaped by truth. And we saw the priority of that. We don't sacrifice truth for peace. We don't sacrifice truth for civility, but true fellowship is actually created by truth. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. We need to be a people grounded in the word. That's why we teach. That's why we, that's why we uh, teach expositionally. That's why we teach the Bible as it's written, as God revealed it to us, the way he inspired it. That's why we teach it the way we do. We also saw that it involves discernment. That very important text in, uh, in verse 17 shows both the method and the motivation of the false teachers. They make much of you. Why? So that you will make much of them. They court you. They, they, uh, they go after you. They show intense interest in you but it's not for you, it's so that you will make much of them. They want your money. They want your respect. They want your whatever it is. And so we're not gonna say any more about that. We're gonna look at the third characteristic this morning that a gospel-formed church, a gospel-shaped church is gonna be, and that is we are going to be, we're gonna have gospel-formed ministry, gospel-shaped ministry. Look what he says in verse 18. He says it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. I want to stop right there for a moment because what we what we're looking at in this in this verse, these last two verses, is that we want to strive to be a church that is characterized by gospel ministry, by gospel ministry. We want to cultivate and we want to pursue that in our lives and in our church. Now, the question is, what does that look like? Well, uh, as, uh, as I often do, I'm going to give you three descriptions from the text. You know what they say, a preacher has uh, three points in a poem. Well, I don't have a poem, but I do have three points this morning. So number one, a gospel-shaped ministry is going to be selfless. Gonna have, it's going to be characterized, it's going to be described by selflessness. What do we mean by that? Well, look what he says here. He says, uh, he says, you know, they make much of you in verse 17, and he quickly backs up in verse 18 and says, listen, it is good to be made much of what they do is not necessarily the problem. We saw how cults uh, and, and false teachers, they, they, they really capitalize on making much of you. And, and what does that mean? Well, that word means to be eagerly sought after as the, as the NASB says. It means to show an intense interest in someone, to to pursue them like like fellas when you were pursuing your wife and courting her and and trying to convince her to marry you. Uh, It's that same intensity, that same interest, that courtship, if you will. It's expressing uh, intense interest and false teachers excel in this. Remember we told you that most people join cults not because of their wacky theology, but because they have... uh, they find such welcoming arms. They find such a loving community. This is something that, that they excel in. And brothers we, and sisters, we ought to be excelling in this as well. In fact, we ought to be better than they are because we have the truth. We ought to be, unfortunately, too often it's the other way around. And so Paul is quick to back up and say, listen, this is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing. It's, it's all over the scriptures. For example, look at Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says there, love one another with brotherly affection. And look what he says, outdo one another in showing honor. There should be a holy competition in the church where where we are literally trying to outdo one another, showing honor to each other. Philippians chapter two, verse three says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Boy, how many church splits could be avoided if we would just follow that. Don't look after your own interests, but count humili- in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Beloved, 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 13 is always quoted in marriage ceremonies, but the fact of the matter is is that it has nothing to do with Marriage. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about the church and how we are to love one another. And I especially think of verse 5 where it says, love does not insist on getting its own way. Love does not do that. It does not seek its own and so these are the kinds of things that Paul says is always good. And we, I want you, I want you to be in a church. You want to be in a church that shows this kind of interest in you. You want to be in a church that is investing in you in this way. You want to be a church where, where you are being cared for, that you are being looked after and that people are literally clamoring to care for you, clamoring to watch after you and to help you. The problem is not what they do. The problem is why. The problem, verse 17, is not the what, it's the why. The Judaizers, the false teachers, and every legalist and self-righteous person, they pursue you in order that you may make much of them. They want your admiration. They want your respect. They want your money, whatever it is. It's driven by their own self-importance. They're selfish manipulative, underhanded, petty, all the marks of being driven by self. That's verse 17. But Paul says it's good to be made much of. And notice what he says here. Not only when I am present with you, this is where the selflessness comes in. Because what Paul's essentially saying here, in other words, is that it's good that you are being sought for. It's good that you are being looked after. It's good that you are in a church that is, that is concerned for you and is ministering to you and is seeking after you, even if it's not me, even if I'm not the one doing it. You can imagine when the Judaizers got this letter, they probably said, oh, Paul's just mad because... We've invaded his turf. We're stamping in on his ministry. He's just mad. We've taken over his turf. On the contrary, Paul Paul knew it doesn't matter who it is that's seeking it out and ministering to him. He sees that what's important is why they're doing it. Why they're doing it. And one of the marks of immature legalistic ministry is territorialism. Getting on my turf. Paul would have rejected that. In fact, he does reject that in 1 Corinthians chapter three. We won't turn there. But one of the things he criticizes the Corinthians for, some of you say, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter. And then of course you always have the spiritual ones, I'm of Jesus, you know. And I love the question he says, "Um, was Jesus divided? If you're really about Jesus, then why are you Exactly, And look what he says in in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 4 through 9. I won't read the whole thing. But he says, when you say, 'I I follow Paul, another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being fleshly? What is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. It doesn't matter who plants. It doesn't matter who waters. So long as God gets the growth. This is kingdom work. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than Calvary Baptist Church. And there is a a holy jealousy that that does not seek territorialism. But on the other hand, there is a holy jealousy in which over those whom God has given us, watch. Watch. It's not for our own turf. It's not for our own self-interest. It's not for our own reputation. It's not so that we can be the biggest church in town. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, I do have a holy jealousy. I do have a holy jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. And when you compare that to Ephesians chapter five, verses 25 through 27, you see that that's exactly what Christ has come to do to make for himself a, a holy and chaste bride. When we truly love our people, we will have a godly jealousy for them. And what that means is we will want what Christ wants for them. Even if it means we're not the ones doing it. Even if it means that we have to step aside. This is the major of biblical God-honoring ministry. There's pure motivation in ministry. It's not to protect our turf. I remember when I was a teenager, I, I attended a, a pretty legalistic church and uh, there was another church and they just kind of sprang up out of nowhere. I mean, it, and, and uh, they were right on the side of, the, of the, what's now I-530 going out of town in Whitehall. Right there on, uh, right there on Highway 104, right there in the corner, and I mean they sprang up out of nowhere. And I remember we were driving by in our church van, and I mean this church had grown to literally a thousand people in a town of only five thousand people. So I mean this was pretty significant. Literally twenty-five percent of the town was coming to this church. And I and I remember, uh, I remember as we were driving down, one of my. Uh, One of the guys in our church, uh, he was actually the youth pastor. He was looking there and he was like, you know, I don't know what that church is doing, but we need to put a stop to it. Really? They're, They're a Southern Baptist church. They're part of us. We need to put a stop to it? That's territorialism. That's all that is. That's turf wars. God will have none of it. He won't bless that. When we truly love our people, we will want for them what Christ wants for them. And what does he want for them? We see that in verse 19. He wants our sanctification. He wants our sanctification. He says in verse 19, I am in the anguish of childbirth. Why? It's kind of weird for a dude to say that, isn't it? That's why I can't find the verse. I'm still in 1 Corinthians. He says in verse 19, he says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What a powerful statement. Paul wants Christ to be formed in you. That's what biblical ministry is shooting for. That's what we are aiming for. That is our goal. That is our motivation that Christ Is formed in us. It is a powerful statement. And in all honesty, a little unusual. A little unusual. This is the only time where he says Christ is formed. That word formed. This is the only time in the New Testament he uses it. It's a very strange word. In fact, in other places, uh, in other Greek literature we have, it refers to a, a baby in the womb who is forming to full maturity, forming to full birth. And so Paul is choosing his words carefully here. I am in the anguish of childbirth so that Christ may grow in you, that he may be formed in you. Just like when a mother's shape is changed by the new life that is forming inside of her, Paul says, I am in the anguish of labor pains until Christ is shaped in your heart. He is shaped in your life and the shape of your life begins to take on the shape of this new life that is forming inside of you, Jesus Christ. Not only that, you know, usually it's Christians who are formed into the image of Christ and yet here we see that it is Christ that is growing in us. It's nothing really mystical here. You know, some people say that you get to a point of Christ-likeness to where you lose your own identity. That's, you know, you're lost in, in who he is and you lose your own personality, your own identity and all that. That's, that's not what this is talking about. That's, that's mysticism. It's not what's being said here. In other words, until Christ... Fashions us and shapes us into his own image. We are submissive to him so that we reflect his life, his glory, his image, his priorities, his love, everything that defined Christ and his life. So we imitate those things in our life through a true holy ambition and an inward change that is happening within us. That's the goal of ministry. And it's messy. It's hard, because who among us can say that we've arrived? None of us can. It is ongoing. It will it will continue to be going until we are glorified with Christ in heaven. It's an onward progressive work that keeps going. Christ, We we want to see that Christ-likeness, the goal of the church is that for every one of our people, Christ-likeness will be seen and manifested in our lives from the inside out. Not just cleaning up the outside, that's whitewashed tombs. That's legalism. That's exactly what the Jews are doing to the Galatian church. That's exactly what's causing all the division because we don't always agree on what on what shade of white we should use on our outside, do we? We don't always agree. Most of the time it's defined by culture more than it is by scripture. No, the goal is to be changed from the inside out because that and that alone can only be defined by the word of God. And so we are changing from the inside. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 He says that as we are beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, there is a progressive process in our lives that the church is working feverishly, working toilsomely in order to see that each and every person is part of this progressive process, that we are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Made and displaying more Christ-likeness. You know, that is the goal of every Christian. I hear people today, what is, you know, what is your purpose? You know, what, what's, what's my purpose-driven life? What's my, call, what, what is God calling me to do? Simple, he's calling you to Christ-likeness. What's your purpose in life? To be like Christ. That's, that's the goal. That is, that, God's, that is God's wonderful plan for your life. I hear that all the time. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You tell that to an unbeliever, he's like, Great, I love me too, and I've got a wonderful plan for my life. So, me and God, we're right there together, aren't we? Beloved, God's wonderful plan for your life is for you to be Christ like, for you to be holy, for you to be righteous. Christ is, not our only, Christ is not only our savior from sin, he is also our great and divine example of how to glorify God in our lives. And the goal of the Christian life, the goal of salvation is that we would be like Christ. It's the divine example for those who are saved. This is God's purpose for you. And that's what he enables you to do in salvation. You say, well, he enables me. He, this is his purpose for me. Randy, where do you find that? Well, Romans chapter eight, verse 29. And by the way, this is the comforting thing is that he's also going to accomplish it. He's also going to accomplish it. And Romans chapter eight, verse 39, it says, "For he, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Do you realize if you are saved, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? He is going to complete this work in you? He is going to bring it to completion. Beloved, listen, when you sin, you don't have to be discouraged. You only have to confess your sin because you know that yes, even though you've had a setback, what God started in you, he's going to complete in you and it's going to be in his power, not in yours. So I blew it again this week, but God's not done with you. That wonderful song. You remember when you sing it as a kid? He's still working on me. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars. this and All the other stuff. Jupiter and Mars. <laughs> you know, beloved, the universe is still expanding. He's not done. And guess what? He's not done with you either. And yeah, you might have messed up this week. Guess what? He's still not done you know, sometimes I think about that old song when I've just blown it again this week. I forgot something I was supposed to do and, and, and I just forgot for no re- reason. I just forgot. I come face to face with my weakness. I come face to face with my infirmities. I come face to face with my sin after I've blown it again. And I thought, you know, sometimes I've prayed, God, how can you possibly still love me? He's still working on me. He's not done with me. And what he, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of redemption. So you are predestined for Christ's likeness. This is not just a goal. This is not just a purpose. This is a sure result of your salvation. So let's just let go and let God, right? Well, no. In fact, that's some of the worst advice you can give. The fact that God's gonna do it does not make us passive, It doesn't mean that we let go and let God, because look what Paul says. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed with you. Understand that Paul talks about striving and pain that he feels fighting for the Galatians. This is a work that God does in our lives, but it's not a work that we are passive in. It is a work that we, that we strive for. It is a work that we yearn for. It is a work that we work for. And notice what he does here. Notice the power of this. He says, I am once again in the pains of childbirth. You know, it kind of it took me back as I read this, it took me back to when he first brought the gospel to the Galatians. In chapter uh, 13 and 14 of Acts and and all those places where he was persecuted. He, He literally was nearly stoned to death in one city. And all of this stuff that he endured, persecuted in every town. But don't miss the power of what he's saying. He's saying that the pain that I feel now over the potential of knowing that you may leave the gospel is just as painful as that physical suffering that I endured when I brought you the gospel in the first place. That's how invested Paul is in your sanctification. That's how invested Paul is in their holiness. Just like I suffered for you when I was there, I am suffering for you again until Christ is formed in you. When is the church done with this work? When you die. When you're glorified. Or when Jesus comes back, which I kind of hope is that one. Say, well, what if I'm not alive when Jesus comes back? Then you're gonna die. And that's when our work ends with you. That's when we stop pursuing you. That's when we stop encouraging you. That's when we stop helping you. Paul is striving over them, feeling the pain, feeling the burn over them. In fact, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul lists through all of this, suffering he goes through in order to bring the gospel on top of all of that he says and apart from all the other things there's also the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches paul's anxiety for you is that you be holy paul uses the most intense pain that you can possibly imagine to describe the pain he feels that the that his church will become holy now, I can't really comment on that, my, that pain because my philosophy is no uterus, no opinion. But you know that this is the most intense pain you could ever feel. And I love how one author puts it. He says, we too must take up our responsibility to labor for one another, to strive with sinners for their conversion and with saints for their sanctification with an energy that exhausts us while God sovereignly and mightily does his work in making us like Christ. We, we minister to one another in a holy energy that literally brings us to the brink of exhaustion. Because it is through that that we see the power of God working mightily and sovereignly in the lives of our people. It's a powerful image. Powerful image. And are we doing it? Beloved, I, I told you earlier if it's not messy, it's not ministry. If you're not exhausted, you know, that's why, you know, I think that's why VBS is always such a great week because we literally work ourselves to the point of exhaustion to see the kids come to Christ. What if we did that every week? What if we did that every week? What if we showed that same zeal? What if we showed that same planning? What if we showed that same financial investment? What if we showed all of the same zeal and holiness and seeking after these kids every week? instead of just one week a year what might god do through that and so there's a holy exhaustion i'm i'm in the anguish of childbirth until christ is formed in you beloved the point of coming to church is not just to get saved because if you think about it once you get saved what's the point of the church That's why we don't preach be saved messages week after week after week. We actually teach you and train you how to live out your salvation. You need the church more than ever. You don't need the church when you're not saved. You need the church when you are saved because that's where you come to find holiness. That's where you come to learn how to live out your salvation in practical ways throughout your week. That's where your heart is confronted. All these guys who say, I can worship at home. I can worship here and there. I can do this. I can worship on the lake. I can worship whatever. Well, you know what's gonna happen when you do that? Your faith is gonna look a lot like you. Your God is gonna look a lot like you. That's what happens when you do that. We need the church. And church, we need to have this holy zeal for one another. I gotta tell you, I've been convicted this week. I am so tempted as a pastor to treat what I do as a job. Nine to five, come home after five o'clock. I'm done for the day. I got to tell you, I've been convicted this week. I hope you are too, whether you are a Sunday school teacher, whether you are a deacon, whether you are a church leader, whether you are uh, aspiring to the pastorate, whether you are a youth minister, a youth sponsor, a VBS teacher, whatever it is, your goal and your, uh, your, your holy desire should be to see the holiness of the people whom God has given you watch. And is there a holy zeal there? Are we working ourselves to the bone? Is there any greater glory that we could work for than that? And so we're working towards sanctification. And finally and quickly, we're doing so sincerely. We're doing so sincerely. Look at Paul in verse 20. He says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I am perplexed for you. Paul wants to be there. He doesn't want to minister from an arm's distance. He wants to be there with them. He wants to be in the trenches. Why? Because he has an affection for them. He said in verse 19, he addresses them as my children, my little babies. Paul loved these knuckleheads. Paul loved them like they were his own children. He took responsibility over them as a father. And his concern for them is seen in verse 20. I I am perplexed for you. I am concerned about you. True gospel ministry is going to be born out of love and concern for the other person. It's not seeking its own, it's not seeking its own turf. Paul's confused and heartbroken. Beloved, whether you are a Sunday school teacher, whether you work in VBS, small group leader, church leader, deacon, pastor, church member, parent, youth sponsor, I want you to see something very important here. Paul's goal is not to win the argument, Paul's goal was to win their heart. And it wasn't to win their hearts to himself it was to win their hearts for Christ. So I'm gonna ask you to just bow your heads for a moment and I'm just gonna ask us to consider what we've listened to from the word this morning. First of all, I'm gonna ask whether or not you have a desire for Christlikeness, whether this is something you want in your life. If The, the, the indication of our salvation is that we want for ourselves what Christ wants for us. Are you growing in Christ's likeness or are you missing a desire altogether? Are you looking for someone who will love you enough to tell you the truth? Who will love you enough to labor in your life? And I'm also gonna ask myself as a pastor, Sunday school leaders, deacons, these are sobering Responsibilities. These are solemn callings. You know, I have to ask myself, have I lived up to them? And I know the answer to that question, I haven't. But if you're someone who you think one day might want to take the mantle of church leadership, this is what God requires. This is what God is looking for. Maybe you're a Christian here this morning. Let me just tell you, Church membership is not just your name on a list. It's not just your name on a roll. It is a holy submission for others to help you reach Christ's likeness and a commitment to seek it and also to help others yourself. We like to say doing life together. I don't know about doing life together, but I will say reaching Christ's likeness together. We're all in this together. We're in the same boat. None of us are perfect. None of us have arrived. But we've committed to the process by becoming a member of the church. So I would ask you this morning, do you see your church membership as nothing more than a name on a roll, name on a list, a check mark, Or are you committed to the goal of this church, which is your own Christ-likeness? Our Father, I pray that as we have been challenged this week, I have been challenged this week to examine myself. You know the thoughts and doubts I have had. You know just all the ways that I have failed. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive me And I pray, Father, that you would make us a church that is solemnly committed to the Christ-likeness of one another. And we're not interested in building a role, but building a church. Anybody can build a crowd. Nothing builds a crowd like anger and whatever it is we're supposed to be mad at on social media this week. Lord, we want to build a church. In fact, we don't want to build it, Lord. We want you to build it. We don't want to grow the church. We, we don't want to compete with you. Lord, instead, we want to participate in your holy building of one another. I pray that you have brought us to a point to where we will be more committed than ever to know the faith, live the faith, and share the faith, the, the way, the truth, and the life that we would build up, our hope, faith, and love. that it'll be all shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved our souls. Lord, make us more holy. Make us more Christ-like. Make us your body. As we stand and sing this song, I pray that it, it will be your prayer this morning. We're just gonna sing maybe one or two verses. Let's stand together and sing this chorus together.